Welcome back. Episode 6 of Teaching Is. I'm James Vincent, your host for this podcast where we explore where music meets education. We talk piano teaching, records, songwriting, producing, DJing and where music and education intersects. So yeah, thanks to all our listeners and subscribers for following. Last week we had on Craig Kickbush, well-established bass player and songwriter. You can check out the, the previous episode on the socials. Today I'd like to welcome a very special guest, a long-time friend, Fred Leone, who is a respected community leader, musician, educator, curator of culture, performer, dancer, as well as a family man. Yeah, hey. How you going? How you doing? Yeah, good, bro. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> and, yeah, it's a bit different because, um, yeah, we spent a lot of time with each other many, many years ago in that band Impossible Odds, so it's kind of like a catch-up yeah, after yeah. all these years. Um, a few more grey hairs. <laughs> a few more grey hairs, a few more pounds. Yeah, yeah. A few more kilos. Actually, something else, is you were also, uh, didn't do in the intro, you're an award-winning Australian Indigenous hip-hop artist with your group Impossible Odds. Also, Bachelor's Songman of Kagari, also known as Fraser Island. Yep. Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah. Basically. You said um, the first one right, and Fraser, Fraser Island you got wrong, which is good <laughs> yeah. for me. No, 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 no. <laughs> Anyway, look, thanks for coming in, bro. It's good to see you again and have this chat. And, yeah, it'd be good to talk about where we, you and I first met. Yep. So um, just checking with you before, I think it was 2007. Yeah, around 2007, yeah. Yeah, um, late, late 2007. And it was around, I, I remember you saying, I think it was the story when you're looking for a new DJ for your group Possible Odds and Nick One. I think recommended me, possibly yeah. others. And, sorry, could you tell us a bit about the history of Impossible Odds uh, the band and how it formed. Yeah, yeah. So there was in '96 or '97. I started rap crew called. I was only 16, 17 myself, and I started um, rapping in a crew called Recipe for Disaster. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. with um, Steve Sevetkovsky and um, Tommy Tom. I forget Tom's last name, but DJ Daddy Dupe and Saber MC. Okay, MC Saber, and so then. And the group sort of changed and then DJ Code Red joined the crew, but it, the name had changed and it was like willing and able. Was it ever called Base X or something? Or well, that, Steve, that... Steve Sabre, Steve Sevetkovsky, he was in a group called Base X. And that oh, was okay. his older brother, Trade Sevetkovsky, and, uh, and another producer and uh, somebody else. And Steve was in that crew. And they had a big hit over in Europe like um, with uh, like drum and bass. Music? Yeah, yeah. Back in the late 80s, maybe, early 90s. I think I see the vinyl around sometime. Yeah. It's like yeah. A 12 red, of that. Red vinyl, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's probably worth a bit of money now, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I watch a lot of Antiques Roadshow, so I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, the right auction with <laughs> the right buyer. <laughs> nah, nah. Yeah, he was in a crew called Base X. So we'd have uh, rap over dr- Jungle and, you know, Break Beat and um, Drum and Bass and stuff like that. And I did a couple of those gigs with him too when I was really young. But, um, and then, then Willing and Able happened and that started, that broke up and then I bumped into DJ Code Red, Jason Wallington, out at a gig one time and he said, oh man, you still rapping? I said, yeah, he goes, should do something. So then we... Can I ask what gig was that when oh, you bumped into him, if you can remember? Oh, I don't know, but you were probably there. We were probably at the same gig. Oh, I like, would have been at the bowl. Um, I have <laughs> um Wong, you know, might have been there or... Um, the Alley Bar. The Alley Bar okay. or somewhere like that or somewhere in the valley. I can't remember. That's all right. Might have Drop Zone. Oh, okay, yeah, Something yeah, like yeah. That. Down here in the, in the valley, yeah. And then we started Impossible Odds. Yeah, yeah, that all happened. And then, then as it started to 
take off. We'd been performing together for a number of years by that time, like all up between Willing and Able and um, Impossible Odds. It had been like seven years or something like that. Yeah. And then, yeah, then it all sort of fell apart as, as this awesome opportunity happened. Yeah. Uh, JB Seed, so one one the, the first ever... So John Butler started a philanthropy arm called the JB Seed. Yeah. And 2007... I took out the Speak Indigenous Hip Hop competition and I thought I'd won a few grand worth of recording or something and <clears throat> I was like, yeah, cool. And I said to Jay, Jason at times, yeah, man, we got this cool opportunity to, you know, hang on. I, the songs that I sent in were really hardcore political songs, political, like, um, in terms of, like, Aboriginal rights and, and talking about what I'd seen in the community and stuff like that. Yeah, and so uh, won this competition, got the email. I remember sitting at work, like, clicking refresh. And like, <laughs> oh, no, no, I didn't get it. And then 5 o'clock came and I pressed ref- I walked in, I was telling my boss, I said, oh, yeah, no, I don't think I got it. So like, they had, like, you know, about four or 500 people, like pretty much every Aboriginal hip-hop artist in the country had submitted a track. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> and then, or two tracks. And then I... Went in one last time before I went home and I went, click, bang, congratulations. I was like, oh, what? I won. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Probably the first thing I've ever won before in my life. Yeah, so yeah, like, nice. Hell yeah. And then um, I gave him a call the next day and I said, oh, you know, so what, what does this involve? Like, are you, how much like, are you going to give me a few grand to record something? He said, oh, a little bit more than a few grand. I was like, oh, so how much is it? And they said, $25,000. I was like, holy guacamole. So, and then between that happening and the... The time we went down to record, Jay had left the crew. So, right. Yeah, because I, I was talking about really political stuff and I think he, being a non-Indigenous person, he wasn't comfortable. Like he said, oh, it's cool, it's cool. But he said, you know, there's other stuff and he, you know, he said, you need to talk about more just mainstream stuff. And I was like, oh, man, this is why we won the money. And it's like something that, it's a style of music. Like nobody tells Public Enemy to change their style of music or, you know, Dead Prez or... Well, like they, or if they do, I'm like, sure they would have, and they just they just don't listen to them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> just yeah, doing yeah. what they feel is right. Yeah. yeah, and so I said, oh, no, I can't, you know, I can't change it. And then I got an email, and three pages long, and he said, no, I'm leaving. I said, all right. So I went to Sydney with no music, oh, <laughs> just the okay. lyrics. Yeah, yeah. And then um, got down there and worked with um, Tony Buchan, Buckman, who yeah. worked with The Waves. I oh, worked with The Waves. Yeah, yeah. Waves. Yeah. did, all, um, like, a few of The Waves albums, um, Blue King Brown, a whole bunch of different artists, um, and worked on that, and the EP came out, and then suddenly it was time to... I had to start thinking about touring. I was like, oh, man. And I was asking everybody, everybody that asked, they're like, return again, return again, DJ returning. You know James, Jimmy? I was like, nah. Yeah, return again. And then... That's when I was like, oh, ring, ring, got, got found your number through, I think, maybe Nick or somebody and tracked you down, yeah. Yeah, grateful to get that call. Yeah, I remember the, one of the first gigs was either at Black Bear Lodge with you guys and the other one it was possibly Woodford. Yeah, It was yeah. one of those two. Yeah. I, remember, I remember I was late for the Woodford gig. We got caught in mud or something and then my partner at the time, real late, you kind of... You saw me walking on late. I remember you kind of give me that that stare, like, ah, oh, it's like <laughs> another one. That was another time waster. And I was like, no, but, you, no. but I remember you kept the, you kept me on. I thought, oh, that's good because I'd never, but you know, I'm rarely late. I'm usually like 
yeah, on Toa. And yeah, the one at the Black Bear Lodge. So I don't know which one came first, but yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember really digging it and um, got to do my cuts. She gave me a lot of freedom to yeah, yeah. do do stuff at the time with the with the cuts, which I like. Yeah, and also I was doing I was doing a bunch of workshops with like Nick One and, and Uzi back in the day. So we might have got around that way as well. Yeah, 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 <clears throat> yeah. It would have been Uzi, yeah. Yeah, Nick and Nick and because some yeah, usually kept talking about. You said, "Oh, you know Fred," and I go, "No." He said, "Yeah, he does the other workshop. They're probably going to bring in that guy for that workshop." And oh, I go, okay. okay. And yeah, I hadn't, yeah. yeah, hadn't quite met you yet. Yeah, yeah. And look, yeah, since since two thousand, I'm guessing it's that's roughly the year you've worked in Indigenous hip hop scene, Queensland hip hop scene, education and youth sectors. Cut your teeth as an MC, arts and cultural facilitator, youth worker, creative producer. This is the stuff yeah. I read on LinkedIn as well, yeah, from what yeah, I know yeah. about. It. Yeah. Is that a yeah, fair? Yeah, yeah, fair? yeah. Just jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Well, after all those years, though, you, you, you know, there, there's some depth there that must have mastered some there. Yeah, yeah got a few. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I was going to say, do you remember learning, like, how did you learn to rap? Was this a, a self-taught thing? No. Oh, well, when I was young, yeah, my older cousins would be playing rap, like NWA and, uh, like, um, Sugar Hill Gang and Grandmaster Flash, Furious Five. There was always a tape floating around, somebody yeah. would tape and be playing it. And if I was lucky enough to just, like, if they'd left their Walkman there for, you know, overnight or a day or two, I'd be like, oh, well, I might just use it and walk around the house and turn it on and like, oh, yeah. How old were you then? You I reckon? was about 11, 12. 11, yeah. 12, okay. Yeah. And then, um, and that, that, I got, got into hip hop through a couple of different ways. So there was, you know, there's four elements there's like, uh, MCN, DJ, and breakdancing, and graffiti. And I was into a little bit of, shall we say, art. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that element I, was really resonated with me. because uh, one of my older cousins was a graffiti writer. When I was about 12, yeah, I started dabbling in that, just learning how to shape letters and, you know, coming up with tags and having yeah. pieces and all that. Yeah, I, I just started, all these raps I was hearing, I was able to just memorise them and, you know, recite them and I'd just do it at parties and with my cousins and mates and that. And then when I was about 16, 17, a cousin said, uh, I was over at my auntie's house in Anala and in Brisbane here and a cousin said oh there's these guys they're, they're, they're looking for a new rapper in their rap group I was like oh what are they called recipe for disaster I was like yeah. oh well, okay yeah right I'll come over I the only rap that wasn't like a rap that I'd heard on the radio was a, a rap that my Tongan because I'm a Tongan side so I'm Aboriginal and Tongan yeah. and South Sea and on my Tongan side my cousin um, had written this rap several years earlier that people used to all know around Anala. So I went over to this guy's house with my cousin and they said, oh, yeah, show us what you got. And they started um, DJ Daddy Dupe. Like this, the whole of the under uh, underneath of this house was just lined with record crates. Yeah. Thousands <laughs> of records, like the most records I'd ever seen before in my life. I was like, what is this craziness? This is crazy. And he's like, oh, he's just picking out different records and he'd start scratching it, make, doing a break beat, you know, like doo -doo -doo. Juggling, you'd start juggling and then... Giving you a um, backing for the yeah, rappers to yeah. do their stuff on. Yeah. And then I, I busted this rap and they're like, whoa, did you write that? I was like, no, I'm a cousin. They said, hey, what other raps have you got? I was like, oh, rap some, maybe, I don't know, Sugar Hill Gang or Tupac <laughs> or something. What, what do you want? And they're yeah. like, so is that all you got? And I said, yeah. And they said, okay, look, you're awesome rapper. You're in the crew, but it's going to be like six to 12 months before we do any gigs because we're going to have to get you ready. And then Sabre just taught me how to put, how to structure raps. 
Yeah, I was going to ask about Saber how much of a, a mentor yeah, you may yeah. have been in, in, in um, well, both riding and also riding. Yeah, but right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. In, um, yeah, in two ways, because like the crew that I was in, we, <clears throat> my cousins and I, my cousin, my brother and I, and one, one other mate had started this crew in the graffiti crew in 1992. And the crew that, MC Sabre was in was a big, big crew and they were all the older guys and they'd started yeah. in the eighties. And so there was like that element of it, but the rap and DJ element as well and breakdancing. So there was like breakdancers. They had all like every element covered. Yeah, nice. And so when they hit me up to join that crew, I was like, what? Cause it, you know, there was a few big crews in Brisbane throughout the eighties and the nineties and they were one of them. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'll, yeah, okay, I'd love to. Yeah, he taught me, you know, just the ins and outs of how to how he structured his raps and and how he wrote them and the way he'd set it out on the paper so that you could read it seamlessly and deliver it like you wanted to deliver it and not not like a normally structured sentence and syllables and bars. I didn't, I didn't even know what bars were. I was like, it was just a mystery. I like, <laughs> I just um just wait for one bar and then come in and I'd be like. Oh. What's that? <laughs> yeah. And then I found out, you know, there's different types, like there's eight or 16 and yeah. usually a rap verse is like 16. It was just... It's interesting. It starts, I guess it starts to build a schematic in your head, like a yeah, structure or a way of talking about it that yeah. speeds things up when you're, you're yeah. learning and learning how to do it and delivering it. Yeah, and communicating to each other is um in your, in your group. I'll come in at this eight or you take a 16 rather than... Yeah. No, you've got to come in here when... Yeah, you, you could do it at a much broken down version, but it makes things faster. Yeah, yeah interesting. Uh, I've got to mention, I won't go on too much about it, but I heard... I remember you saying once you were really good at... When you were, when you were putting up, you'd get to some really hard-to-get places. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. You're a bit of a king at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always <laughs> had little stay-up spots and everyone would be like, oh! And how then, do you do that? Yeah, yeah. how do you do that? Where, where, you know, like, wow, you, how'd you get up there or, you know? Wow, that stayed there for ages, and I just sort of had mapped it out in my brain, like, oh, you know, this, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a really interesting time to be alive. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, my, myself, I've been involved with sort of music workshops since '96, and a lot of it being hip hop workshops and DJing uh, with people like I think one of my first ones was in '96 when uh, yeah, Joan Birch got me in to do like a special needs workshop at Zilmia. That was pretty, what was it, Aspley? It was like Aspley Special School. Matrix and Book with Kin, Brisbane Library Square, mainly DJing and delay pedals and loops and things like that. And then through knowing you, and at first it was people like Nick One or Nick Grace, I became involved in hip-hop workshops from the early 2000s to around 2012. I guess it sort of tapered off for me. And also a lot, lot of involved like youth at risk work uh, back then. Eye-opener for me. and But, yeah, really sort of gratifying. See what these – it's like a cliche. You see what the kids come up with and record. But, yeah, yeah at the time it just – it's like that's really cool. And everyone's got their own – you know, unique fingerprint of what they want to express and, and you know, also production and songwriting and in fact here at you know, like the school running now Vincent Music we do production songwriting workshops in the holidays yep. but they tend to be with more you know affluent kids who are coming in to record their latest auto-tune track you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, but well. it's good it's good but anyway what, what's your history with hip-hop uh, workshops and music workshops for that matter and could you reflect on any of these times you must have done a massive yeah, amount yeah like I, and maybe still do for a thought I know. Yeah, every now yeah. and again I, um, you know, dust off the, <laughs> dust off my mic and my gear yeah. and, and go out and do a hip hop workshop. I yeah, it was 
I think about like any highlights. Ninety seven. Yeah. yeah. And then I uh, ninety seven I started rapping. Ninety six, ninety seven I did my first gig. And then it was a bit Where was that at? Where was your first gig? Oh, was that at the zoo? No. It was at a skate park over near Wynnum somewhere. It was a big half bowl. Okay, okay. Yeah, a half bowl. And how I'd got my MC name was my best friend, his brother's older brother who'd passed away, his best friend's tag was rival. And I saw it on yeah. the wall, and I was like, "Oh, rival! I'm gonna call myself Rival MC." <laughs> and then I, uh, that's what I did. I called myself Rival MC. And then, um, yeah, I was out at the skate bowl. We were doing this gig, and it was my first ever gig for uh, Brisbane City Council thing. And uh, mate of mine, Mikey, was up. Oh, I'd just met him that day, so he was a part of this crew that I joined, and he was up on the top of the skate pole. He goes, "Oh, you must be rival." He's like, "Is that yeah. Mikey that I, I know?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, you must yeah. be rival. He's like, "Hey, man." Um, he goes, oh, you're going to have a lot of rivals with an MC name like that. And then he dropped into the half half pipe. And I was just yeah. like, whoa, just watching these guys. And then there's painting painting happening there and, yeah. you know, rap. And, um, yeah, and that was a 97, maybe late 80, 96, but 97. Yeah, right. And then, um, then that was it. We started playing clubs and, yeah, pubs, clubs, like any, all the local sort of hip-hop jams. And say, uh, Steve was a um, bit of a promoter and, and like, would cope host things with people yeah yeah so that was about then and then i started workshops about maybe 2000 and uh, 2001 2002 or something like that probably around around the same time as yourself maybe yeah yeah that's what i remember starting to do them like those kinds of workshops the hip-hop workshops there was a real big need there was a big i guess there was there must have been funding back then and a need for yeah, like connecting with youth and and, it'll, and they were right back then too. It's a, it seems a little different these days from what I hear with producers bringing in beats and a lot of those old time. I find the kids are finding it's uh you know they sound old dinosaur beats compared to oh, really? what they're looking for yeah, today. But yeah, 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 yeah. with trap and, and uh, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and all that. In. Yeah, just that pop way. It's just permutated and pop. It's um, yeah, it's a whole it's different. Kids, mate, I don't know. Yeah, they sound <laughs> no, like no. old old uh, fellas. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think like uh, yeah, it was it was around then, and I and I was a social worker, so I was a, mm. I was a youth worker, social worker for thirteen years. So when all that okay. was happening, from ninety nine till about two thousand ninety nine till about for thirteen years from ninety nine, then I sort of had a burnout doing outreach, and I just was like, oh man, working two or three jobs. Came across a, an old bloke actually that had um, been bashed, and he died in front of myself and another colleague under the Grey Street Bridge, and I. Uh, Karupa, Karupa Park or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Street Bridge, and then that was it. I just went, nah, I can't do this work anymore. Like, I really love Take working a look. with young yeah. people and stuff and uh, kids at risk on the street, but, uh, yeah, I just needed time to <laughs> yeah, do cool. stuff for myself. Yeah. yeah, what year was that, that when was you had about, to reflect, had to change course? Uh, so, 99, I started uh, 99, 2009, 2011, about 2011 or 12. Oh, really? Yeah, right in the times that are yeah. doing impossible odd stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I just was like, you're a family man too, there. Too. Yeah, yeah, all that yeah, stuff yeah. compounding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just all the pressure building up, and then I just went, I snapped, and I literally, I just woke up the next morning and rang in work, rang, rang up. Well, I was working at Brisbane Youth Service, Indigenous Youth Health Service, and I think for Catholic Education at the time. And I rang, rang up, and just said, "Hey guys, I'm not coming in." And they're like, "Oh, okay. When are you coming in next?" Nah, I quit. 
Yeah, what? yeah. You've got to give us notice. Said, no, I quit. <laughs> that was it. And I sat on the dole for a month and then... Um, you got to do what you got to do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I got a phone call because I'd been doing workshops, hip-hop workshops. I got a phone call from a uh, youth arts organisation that was in the Valley, Contact Inc. Yeah. A visible Inc? Uh, no, that Contact Inc. Contact Inc. Yeah, there was Visible Inc, which is a council-run right. uh, thing. And then this was a, um, just a funded organisation specifically for youth arts. Yeah, so then I started working there as an Indigenous project worker, which was cool, and and then then did more workshops with those guys out in the community, all around the community, and plus we were still working on the same stuff. I think you were, would have been doing as well with um, Speak Out, like Styling Up, working on the Styling Up regional workshops and all that stuff. That that was really big. Yeah, I was Styling Up. That was a big year there for a while. Did it just kept getting bigger until COVID-19, do you reckon? Or no, Was no. there like a peak around it, 11, 12? It, yeah, peaked around then. And mm. then a few years after that, like a few years after we'd headlined it, headlined it. Did we headline that? I forgot yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, we so That must be that DVD that yeah. I saw. Okay, that yeah, was that. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense now. Yeah. And, and I think <laughs> the, year we, the year before we headlined it, we had, remember there was like eight Tyco drummers? That's right, yeah. I uploaded a video. I found some footage of that and put yeah. it on Insta about a couple of months ago. Yeah, that was that was, ama- that was amazing Yeah, opening that one. That yeah. was good. That, you know, that was about 2009, yeah. Yeah, I put some – I got a, an old rehearsal <laughs> right. uploaded. And, um, and, in fact, Steve – shout out to Steve uh, Mason, is it? Yeah, Steve Mason, yeah, yeah. He was, he was in here the other day. Like sometimes a, there was like a lady from one of the his group came and she's been booking rooms to practice – Tyco yeah. drumming in here. Yeah. I think in my room because it's the most soundproof. Yeah. And even then, it you can kind of hear yeah. it. So it has to be done after hours. But yeah, he popped his head in. He was in here one day. Yeah. So I was yeah, it's a trip down memory lane. Yeah, that was a good yeah, fusing that sort of hip hop with the Tyco drums and the opening and, and the yeah. visuals of it. You had some great ideas. I remember that. You always was, you'd get bored and you go, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. Yeah, and it yeah. sometimes drive me nuts. It's like because I get <laughs> I, I want to program and a structure and keep it the same, and yeah, then you yeah. mix it up again. It's like ah. Oh, but yeah, so, some really amazing, yeah, amazing ideas. Kind of, I'm, yeah. probably, I'm probably maybe <laughs> high functioning something or other, but I don't know. Oh, well, it works. It works it in entertainment. Work, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was cool because we'd always do like really weird stuff. Like I remember, remember we'd have like <laughs> traditional dance at the start, and then it, then there was like an airplane flying over and crazy airplane. I don't yeah, know. like a, when we did the when we launched the label actually 2009, and there was like a panda. Oh, panda, sound like effect a seven, of a plane. Yeah, sound oh. effect of a plane, seven forty seven flying over. Okay. And it from right to left. And everyone's like, what the heck is that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't I can't even remember that. Yeah. It yeah. sounds like something like that would have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um yeah, it's interesting times. Uh, you know, Drew ID or Drew the Macrovat. Yeah, Drew, yeah. You, yeah. Um like to get him on here one day. I think but, I... Uh, he lives down the road from me actually. I, I sometimes I walk my is dog and he Yeah, yeah. I, I Kingfisher mean, guys. King, oh, Kingfisher. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome, dude. But, yeah, I remember he had us in. He might have had me in for something separate too, but yeah, there was a stage. Yeah. We were in there together. Yeah. And I remember, yeah, Queenie and Common Ground yeah, and yeah. those guys. Yeah. And I just remember you, sometimes you just walk in. It was like, yeah, you're a character. So you just walk in and, the, yeah, the kids are really, really relate or they'd laugh or something. You yeah, just yeah. you just capture the attention straight away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just um, – I think just growing up with like, oh my god, like always had other cousins and that around, and then even mm. when I was getting older, I had like younger cousins, so like had to figure out how to keep their attention. And so then it was by the time it came to like sitting in, in a workshop setting, it was like, 
it's not going to give these kids a minute to think about being bored. It will just, you know, just be animated and move around. And I don't know if I could be that animated these days. <laughs> but, but, yeah, no, people do still say, oh, man, you, you know, you're great with young people and, and just animated. I never thought of myself as animated, but, yeah, apparently I am. So. It's funny when you compare yourself to others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Should have been a comedian. I... <laughs> yeah, you're, uh, that's the other thing. I com- yeah, you you got some great, I reckon you got some great comedy traits. And, yeah, but, I mean, seeing that stuff, to I'll talk about that when Yuzi was there and yeah, you and him, you and Yuzi doing that inflatable boy oh, yeah. skit routines out yeah, at yeah. Warabonda? Warabinda. 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 Rockhampton. Yeah, that was crazy. Someone had announced it and the other guy would act it out and like you're lying on the floor and running around and yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was classic. Great little skit. What was it about this kind of education that you think was unique at the time that maybe the kids weren't getting from other education sources? Because yeah. we used to hear about, I mean, it was current, it was on trend, that yeah. was one thing. But do you think there's something about, you know, hip-hop workshops that made that unique compared to... Yeah, and I think even today I think it's still unique because it's uh, because it's not so formal and there's not like a... Kids just relax. Like, they get into the space, they're not relax. sure what to what to expect and then they're like, oh, okay, I'm just going to write. Like, I, you know, and... They, they can sort of emulate the sounds that they like, like the people that they like listening to, but then they... So they relax. That, that's an interesting point. Yeah. 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 Not like... Um, Feel in the safe space. They yeah, in the safe to... space, yeah. And I think too, like, the power of it in terms of when you're working with kids from low socioeconomic communities or, or um, marginalised communities, they often don't have a, a voice, like uh, don't have a voice. So, like, even if they're in a classroom... They're sort of invisible. Yeah. And so when, when it comes to, like, hip-hop or music in general, mm. as soon as it comes to music, their, their ability to express themselves just shines. Like, and, and they, you know, I think they... Well, the opportunity is bigger for them at yeah, that moment yeah. compared but, to other op- general yeah. opportunities in the yeah, education yeah. system. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, and it's it's self-driven. Like, it, all, all it is is... And then they learn the skills that they get from music and music workshops and, you know, studying music or learning music and musical techniques. They're not, they're not realizing, but it's like it, um, able to be used, those same skills are able to be used in the classroom when they're sitting there in English or maths, you know, like I, I was terrible at maths and the only sort of good maths, the only thing I was sort of good at with maths was counting bars eventually. Oh, uh, okay. Because um, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of maths and music. Writing, like I, I got really good at, I noticed from about grade 10 to 12, my English, my skills in English picked right up to where I was getting like really high marks. All right, not high marks, decent marks for me. Yeah, much previous, better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But even then, I didn't read my first book from front to back till I was 23. Is that the Malcolm X autobiography? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, it's such a great book. I love yeah. that movie too. Yeah. What influence did that have on your life? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I love that movie. I mean, I read the, the book after that. Yeah. Well, I saw the movie and I was like, I, I realised. It was long too. Yeah. Because yeah. I'd, <laughs> I'd sit in, when I was working for like Catholic education and like for youth services and stuff, I'd sit in meetings and people would be talking they might say something like, oh, let me clarify that with you later or, you know, oh, that's indicative of such and such or this or that. And I'd have no idea what they were talking about and so I'd be like writing it down phonetically. And at the time I didn't even know how to, you know, what phonetically what that word meant, but I'd write it down how I thought it sounded. So you could, 
refer back to it in a way yeah. that you understood. Yeah, and before Google, there was the only thing that was around at the time when the internet was sort of still in its infancy was um, Ask Jeeves. So I'd, I'd get on Ask, Ask Jeeves, Jeeves yeah, and I'd a bell. the answer would come up. And then I was like, oh, I was struggling and I didn't know why and I was just like, oh, man, this is frustrating. Then I watched that Malcolm X movie and I went, wow. That's right, because he read the dictionary, right? Well, Starting at Aardvark and... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he read the dictionary and I was like, whoa, in jail. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and, and, and he had a non I think he wrote it out too, yeah, right? It was it more than just, yeah, everything to understand like, everything. Yeah, and I was like, wow, okay. If this guy can do that and he was a drug dealer and a pimp and all this crazy stuff and then became like uh, the person that he was within the African-American community and influenced so many people, I thought... Well, I could I can learn how to read. Like he just picked up a book and, and mm. taught himself. So very systematic, yeah. methodical, and hard. it would have taken hard work. Yeah, I imagine. yeah, yeah. And by that time, I was twenty three, and I was having a rough time in the relationship in the relationship that I was in. And I was like, yeah. oh man, I'm going to my uncle's, and he lived in uh, Waterloo. Uh, Waterloo. Waterloo, which is Waterloo or Woolloomooloo. No, Waterloo, next to Redfern in Sydney. And I just up jumped on a train, <laughs> went down there with like. 200 bucks in my pocket. Stayed there for a month or something like that. Had no money and I walked into a shop. I remember seeing the movie and, and I, while I was down there, I was like, you know what, This is I can use this time while I'm just out of the world and nobody knows who I am or where I am or what I'm doing and I can just work on myself. And like I a went, time out space. They yeah. say pressures, hey. I'm- yeah. And I walked into an old book, uh, a, a secondhand bookstore, found a, saw the book, the Malcolm X mm. autobiography or uh, biography or whatever. And I was like, whoa, picked it up, bought that with my last 25 bucks. And I was like, I don't even know how I'm <laughs> going to read this. I'm like sort of looking through it. And I could, yeah, right. I, I couldn't comprehend like. It's like you're using that book as the, the same way he used the dictionary. Yeah. You were trying so, to. Yeah. And so this is, sounds really bad, but, and, you know, I don't condone this sort of behavior, but I went and I had no money and I was in Sydney. Oh, it is what it is. Yeah. At the time, yeah. And I went and I stole a <laughs> massive big, uh, 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 what is it, Oxford Dictionary. Concise Oxford Dictionary, big, thick, hardcover one. And then I also (laughs) stole a a student's dictionary and a thesaurus. And I thought, between all these three books, because somebody said, oh, you you need to look at a thesaurus. That'll tell you, like, different. You can work out. I remember Steve, when I was younger, he'd Mm. he'd said, oh, he bought me a rhyming dictionary. He said, there's also a thing called a thesaurus, so you can use that. So I had, like, basic, you know, understanding. But then, so I got these books, and then I just started going through this biography every time I didn't know a word which was like frequently I'd just highlight it and then I'd sit there with these dictionary and I'd go through it the big dictionary and then if I didn't quite understand that I'd go to the student dictionary and then reference it and then go across to the the thesaurus thesaurus yeah and it took me 18 months I started reading it down there and then I came back up to Queensland up to Brisbane about 18 months it took me to I didn't turn a page until I understood Understood. every word on that page then then I'd flip it and then yeah 18 months it took and I got front to back and then I was like oh wow whole new world had opened up. So it's like you're educating yourself off a role model who has showed the same very similar way of educating himself in a sort of self-taught way, yeah, you know, and determined yeah. way. I can't compare my tangent. I guess sometimes I compare when I used to have sick days as a kid, it's those days where you sit at home and you bet you're sick and you, you do something like I used to write music. I wouldn't normally do that, but you suddenly got this time out space where you can. I wonder if that is the kind of thing that needs to be built into education system and workplaces. Yeah. Because it just, yeah, suddenly the pressure's off. Yeah. I'm going to try. So it's like an experiment. Yeah. 
state if your head's in a space. Same with the company. I used to work with uh, Sega, Creative Assembly. They'd start these things called Lab Days. In fact, I think I wrote a, a backing track for Impossible Odds off one of those days. Um, yeah, right. Let's get it started. That yeah, bit. yeah, um, But yeah, one day a fortnight, we come in and we're not allowed to work. We're not, you can do whatever you want. It was such a weird concept. But out of that, people built little games or little apps or, yeah, for myself, I was writing music. Our um, CEO at the time, so he was you know, into the books and job philosophy, philosopher guy, and he was highly recommended. That was a way to, to harness yeah. and encourage your creativity. I thought it worked, and then they, they suck handed. I think the programmers came in and said, this is a waste of time. We could be doing actual work, and it went out. But, yeah, that was great at the time. Yeah. Anyway, slight tangent, but uh, it just reminds me a bit of that. Can you think of any success, in inverted commas, success stories that you know came out of those workshops you were doing? Like any people oh. have gone on to, to do anything yeah, so not so much a workshop. So, you know, Emily Wurramara, she just got nominated for an Aria this year. So she's got... Because she used to work at the State Library. The, no, no, no. Okay. And, and she's getting pumped on Triple J and on the radio and stuff. When she was young, I was working at Jabiru mm. over at um, Brackenridge. I grew up in Brackenridge, between Brackenridge and Anala. A mate of mine, Jay Webb, he was running a music program and he was recording young people from the outreach section of the organisation. He said, oh, look, uh, I was working in schools. I was a, uh, I forget what I was. This, I was. I had a year-long contract. And while I was there, I was in, take just a guy was on leave, paternity leave. And so Jay said, oh, look, I've recorded this young Murray girl and she's got amazing songs, man. This is crazy. you got to have a listen. And I heard her music and I was like, what? Yeah, this is mental. Like, she's really good and really... Um, she had a song, Mr. Tin Man, and it was like an analogy of herself being Mr. Tin Man and, and all this. What year was this, roughly? This was about... <sighs> 2000 and... Just love getting these dates. Just yeah. put, it paints a timeline for yeah, me, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. It might yeah. have been 2007 or 8. Yeah, right. 7, 8 or 9, yeah. something like that. Because Styling Up was... Had established. Well and truly had been established. Yeah. And so there was one point I'd had a band, the Amato Brothers playing. Oh, the Amato Brothers. Yeah, yeah, they, were, they, yeah. Were, they were mad. Yeah, they so were when, awesome. when they were playing with us, that's when I got them to learn two of Emily's songs that we were recording and we played at Zoomia Multicultural Festival and then the week later we played at Styling Up. That's right, Zoomia Multicultural. Yeah. Do they still run that? Oh, yeah, they're still going. They're still yeah, going. They're still yeah. going, yeah. Styling Up's been defunded but Zoom yeah, still Zoom yeah still cool that's good yeah I remember getting them to learn her songs and then when we were there I said oh Emily, and ladies and gentlemen Emily, I said to her you're going to come up and sing a couple of your songs and she went oh I don't know uncle I said yep yep jump up she goes but these guys don't know my songs said, yeah they learned them already we've been listening to your <laughs> she uh, recording she would have spun out yeah she was like what and then got her up there and then a week later got her up at Stolen Up in front of 9,000 people in the uh, middle of our set you know like and just said oh okay we're just going to have a break from our set and when so I was there. Her. I was yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. introduced her and then she <laughs> came out and did two of her songs. Everyone went nuts. And then... Oh, man, I'm trying to remember that. Yeah. yeah. And then that sort of launched her. That was probably the biggest highlight for me. Like, not launched someone... her, but she, it gave her that fire in her belly to go, wow, I can do this. And then she just kept going, just picked it up and didn't put it down. She's still, like, smashing it out. That's awesome. And it's not to say there weren't others. It's just, I just wonder that you might That's come to mind, you know. Think of, um, I've got to say, actually, this reminds me of kind of a weird story. Uh, I don't know if you know, have you heard of a book called Pig City? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know about that, that yep. the guy who wrote it, Andrew Stafford? Yep. Yeah, I did. He's the author. I think I was in an exhibition with him once. Okay. They interviewed me and they interviewed a whole bunch of, like a whole bunch of Queensland mu- music artists. Because I remember it was around 2004. 
2005, 2006. Because, you know, I was such a late driver. I didn't get my license until I was 31. You probably I don't oh, remember picking what? me up. And I was a DJ, you know, yeah. with all that gear. As uh, my poor ex-girlfriends and stuff wise. And there's uh, Late bloomer, eh? Late bloomer, yeah. Me, and my brother too. We got, yeah, I got a 31 eventually. And, yeah, yeah it changed, changed a lot of things for me. And I'm just going from New Farm to Visible Inc. to do a workshop on the weekend. I think um, it's one of, it was with Nick One. There was a guy called Simon DeLacy. Oh, DeLacy Lacy. DeLacy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Sarah. Patrick. Sarah Patrick, yep. yeah, 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 yeah he's yeah. doing it there. And yeah, Andrew Stafford picked me up in a taxi. I didn't realise it was him. I just got this, like his parents gave, my parents gave me Pig City you know, recently, prior, yeah. and he, this guy's, he's asked me all these questions and going, and I'm going, oh, yeah, who are, he says, yeah, my name's Andrew, Andrew Stafford. I said, oh, are you the author of that book? Like I just read, and yeah, it turns out he was. And, but he was asking me stuff because like, he was curious about what I was doing and yeah. going to the workshop. And he, he said, oh, I've just got a question I can never understand is why, you know, Australian Indigenous kids look up to, and at that time, it was people like you know, NWA and Tupac, yeah. and he just he said, "I just don't, That's I don't get it. Yeah, I, yeah. They, they seem like I can, I get it. There's similar like color, color of the skin, yeah. And then, but everything else is like American. I was trying to answer like, yeah, I think." That's probably it. That's just relatable. It's like a you know, a yeah. dark skin role model, a musician. Yeah. But I don't know what your take. You might have a, a much better answer than yeah, I wish yeah. I gave Andrew. But yeah, no. Like yeah. I, I got asked a question like that years ago too. When when we were in our prime, smashing it out, interviews and stuff. And somebody, some magazine said, "Oh, why is it that Indigenous kids seem to resonate with the hip hop movement and rap?" rap music in particular. The only thing I could think of at the time was something that came out of a conversation with a mate of mine, DK. Oh, yeah. Um, DK from yeah. Room 4. He used to have a studio, Room 411, and a lot of people... Um, Mad beatmaker. Yeah. Mad, oh, yeah. I saw it, yeah. yeah. Amongst other things. Yeah. And so we were, we were having this yarn, and um, we started talking about it, and we were saying, like, um, in that conversation it came up. And so what it came out of that conversation was something that oh, I've been that I talked about on a number of occasions, but it was like in hip hop, you have four elements. So you've got a DJ in Aboriginal culture. We have a dig player in hip hop or or somebody playing boomerangs, you know, keeping a beat, keeping Mm. a rhythm in hip hop. You have breakdancing. We have shake leg in hip hop. You have a MC. We have a song woman or a song man in hip hop. You have graffiti and we've got the oldest graffiti in the world. in caves. You know, when we broke it down, they were the four core elements of how I think Aboriginal kids and Aboriginal people have sort of assimilated or not yeah, assimilated into this global subculture of hip hop. But also on top of that, there's um was there whole role models. Like in the eighties and nineties, we we're watching T V and you'd watch um video hits or whatever it was or rage and the only people we could see that we could relate to and that had stories that we could actually relate to with these guys rapping. And it was like, mm. and I, at the time we had everything from, we were seeing the same things and the same stories. It just, there was no crack and there was no guns, but everything else, like it was like relatable. So young Aboriginal fellas would be like, yeah, you know, broken glass everywhere. <laughs> like they, they're like, yeah, actually that's my neighborhood. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. They, they could see it. They could feel it, taste it. You could, when we heard those stories, we were like, well, Man, that's and I even remember writing raps when I was younger. When with Sabre, mm. and we'd do gigs, and people were like, "Man, whoa! How did you like? You could tell crazy stories. How did you come up with a story?" I said, "Oh, well, that was a that happened like three months ago. That's, that's my life. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. My so, life. So, so, like, not, I'm not that, sitting you know? there fictionally yeah. coming up with an amazing yeah. story. Yeah, yeah, it's just like no, I'm just, just repeating. Like I'm just telling what I see in in my community, in my neighbourhood, and that's it. And, 
your big thing was too that they were the only role models on TV, you know, apart from like maybe Ernie Dingo would pop up every now and again or yeah. David Gulp a little or people like that, you know. And you, you've probably done numerous workshops. I've been back at my first time, uh, Barrowville. Yeah, Barrowville. Barrowville, yeah. And I went there with you and you organised a workshop. I remember recording these guys there and, and some younger kids as well. And then there was that big song in the room that got recorded. And you were doing like, I, mean, I remember you doing a lot of dancing. You're like all, all fired up, doing all, you're just, you're always super ecstatic and positive. Even when I'm feeling super tired, it's like, I don't know, Fred's doing that. Got extra time. Coffee, bro. You're helping doing the dishes. Coffee. Yeah, coffee and red. <laughs> I think it was an elder doing its knowledge uh, on yeah, lyric Uncle, writing. Uncle Martin Ballingary, I still remember okay. that. Like. It's the first time I'd seen, I guess I've done some sorts of songwriting in the past, but he made it, when he did the songwriting stuff and the lyric writing, he made it really seem quite simple and oh. accessible just on the whiteboard. No, that was Uncle Kutcher, Edwards. Yeah. Oh, okay. Big, big follower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uncle Kutcher, that's right. Yeah, sorry. No, yeah, I was trying to, And then there was like an ease and a gentleness of how the songs evolved and how he included everyone. And some ways very formulate. It was like this, the end of the word had to rhyme, but he was still weaving into whatever the topic was in a really kind of... It was cleverly subtle and gentle, you know, getting the kids to come up with the ideas themselves. The ideas you're sitting there in the air anyway, you've just got to shape them a certain way. And it, was, yeah. it made it seem easy. What your recollections of that time at all you know workshops at Barrowville yeah that was awesome I remember the trip down there and just being like oh we're going to drive down to Barrowville like where's Barrowville okay (laughs) that was your first time no I've driven to New South Wales once for like Bone Thugs and Harmony concert in like 99 Bone Thugs and Harmony yeah but that was the second time but I was like, I'd never been like, you know, to that part of New South Wales. Okay, yeah. yeah. Maxville, Barrowville, around there. I remember we got lost at one point. Oh, that's right. I remember on a dirt track somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, oh, bro, I'm going to have to sing one song from up home. Just hopefully <laughs> it helps us get get there. And I start singing yeah. Going in Army. And then we're like, oh, oh, there it is. Yeah, cool. It was, yeah, we just, we were on the right road. It was just weird where the map had taken us, I think. And I think that was even before, like, Google Maps and all. I remember you got obsessed with that. What was that thing? Navman. Or Navman, yeah. When it came out, you loved it. I can see why now. Like, I use it on my phone all the time. It saves time and stress. Yeah. 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 Especially with all that tour and stuff. It's like yeah. you've got to be there, here, yeah. and everywhere. Yeah. And so the big thing I remember is meeting Uncle Martin Ballangary, but that whole process, that was a really cool week. Some of those kids had, you know, had had, like, really hard out stuff happen within their immediate family so to be able to work with them and then just watch them like people and then having like parents and that come up and go my son doesn't even talk, doesn't even talk. <laughs> yeah he's got him like yeah. doing you guys have got him doing a whole song and he's doing and Tra- travers travers i forget his last name but he lives here in west end actually now he was, was he one that put us up dancer, no, the no, no no dancer oh, okay okay oh, yeah the the guy. Okay, yep, 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 yep. That was the people who put us up was Andrew and Naomi. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Naomi Steinborner and Andrew, I forget his last name, but I just bumped into Naomi the other, they still Naomi. live down Red Rock. That's like, right, and she's connected yeah. to someone, a Book of Kin guy I know called Matrix, shout out to Matrix Motion, I was in a band with him, but yeah, he, apparently they they knew each other from, I don't know, I think it was yoga or body work or something, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, Queensland, Brisbane, even Australian music industry, it's not like, it's big but i feel like everybody doesn't matter what genre of music you've, you're into everybody sort of knows everybody or has heard of everybody and you know mm. bumping into someone go, oh what i remember bumping in a meeting kingfisher through you at island vibe or something i was like oh wow oh man yeah hey big fan <laughs> like i'd never met him but i and, and I, i'd only sort of heard their music 
in that last, like, the, the year before that, and then you're like, oh, these are my mates, those Kingfish. I was like, oh, cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a great bunch of guys. I remember yeah. they had that. I used to play in a band with them called Promiscuous, or I was more of a guest, and they got really good. They had this sort of house they live in. I was that in... Um, Oh, it's sort of East Brisbane. And they had this whole theory of, sort of like brotherhood and relating in the band. Band has to feel like a brotherhood. And I remember they'd just stay home, rehearse all day, maybe twice a day, and they'd get really good and record sometimes. But they'd go and play basketball. I remember rehearsing with them one day. And so what are you guys doing now? Oh, we do our daily basketball game. We all go out and play basketball. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You guys do this every day. He goes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's cool. <laughs> sort of rituals, you know. Yeah. But they got, it worked. Yeah, it worked. Really good. Day. Yeah, it's hard to put that much work in. It's your work and not get good, I reckon. Yeah. Did they just drop another album? They just drop a new I album think they, or something? Like, yeah. Not I feel like I read I it don't know. Hey, I, I think they yeah, may have. I'll catch up with it. Yeah, I saw um Anthony Forrest. I think he was driving along. He waved at me at West End. And as I said, yeah, Drew lives just down the road. Should have touched base with those guys. But look, yeah, in the Barrowville, could you comment on why, or maybe it's not appropriate, but why do you think Barrowville was targeted for that workshop? Um, Barrowville, I can't remember who took us down there. I, I just remember there was a here. lot of, I, I thought there was a lot of a high degree of, you know, murders or unsolved yeah, murders unsolved, or something. A, a lot of unsolved oh. Aboriginal murders of women. Yeah, Aboriginal right. women. Yeah. And so, and the community were just like, and a lot of, you know, just at the time, I don't know about now, but at the time there was like, racism was rife. Like I even remember mm. when we'd walk into shops down there and I'd just get the filthiest look that wouldn't even, you know, just serve other people and straight yeah. up. Just, you know. What are you doing here? <laughs> you're in the wrong yeah, town. Yeah, you feel like you're yeah. doing Okay, yeah. yeah. And it had that, the whole town had that heaviness. And so, like, when you feel a place like that, and it, then it's reflected in the community, the young people there, that's like... They're growing up and they're just going to have a consequence yeah. on... Yeah, and those young fellas down there, you know, a few of them were, like, really fair-skinned Koori fellas. And so there's that identity stuff with that as well. And then, you know, how do they identify and, and sort of helping them to become, gain that self-confidence to be able to say, yeah, well, this is a part of me. This is who I am. This is a part of me. I'm proud of it. I live in this community. It might not be something that the wider community think I should be proud of, but I'm going to be proud of it. I'm going to put it in a song. I'm going to, you know, and it, uh, even the, well, I remember getting comments after, like weeks after, emailed to us saying, oh, you know, those kids walk around with their heads held high, like they're really... Made a, made a mark. Yeah, yeah, made a mark. Yeah. And, yeah. and I find that a lot with a lot of young people that got involved with hip-hop workshops or music workshops, hip-hop workshops, well, particularly because we were doing hip-hop workshops, but yeah, in those old workshops, like, I don't know, did you come up to Mornington, uh, Mornington, uh, to Palm Island? Not to Palm, Mornington, Domaji with you, but not Palm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it might have been someone else. Yeah, uh, Nick One, I know, came up. I, I think Tom Dunn was up there at one yeah, point. Yeah, me, Nick, and Tom went one time, yeah. Yeah, I heard the story about, uh, I won't mention it, mention it, they said, someone was saying to the community organiser, why do you want to bring, gra- why do you want to do graph artist workshops? Like, yeah. It's the place is kind of clean at the moment, you yeah. Know? And then, sure enough, after the workshops, are, yeah, there's some mad graph everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So, so I told you, so what? You want to teach kids to do this? All right. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was all. Oh, yeah, I think that was about 2009, maybe. Still got a photo, and we all look like babies. It's, oh it's yeah, so yeah. I think I've seen. I yeah. think you. Posted something like yeah. that, yeah. It's terrible it's because there was a big giant cigarette in one of the classrooms <laughs> at the school where we were doing it. Oh, it was like I... a meter meter long cigarette, like with a <laughs> like a lit end, you know. Yeah. And we're all taking turns getting photos, <laughs> chugging on a ciggy. Well, yeah. Which is ironic because I ended up being Ted on the, on the television. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I would turn it on. And I, yeah, I was 
with my wife going, oh, yeah, that's that's the Fred, that's the guy I keep talking about that was in a band with. Yeah, yeah. Calls himself Ted and so close to Fred. It was just a thing. They couldn't have me use my real name because it was yeah. a government television ad. But that was at your actual, wasn't that at your actual family at the time? Well, or, yeah, that yeah, was my yeah. boys, my ex-wife yeah, I mean, was in not... there, my mum, my auntie. Yeah, so they said, oh, if anybody's going to get named, they have, to, they have you have to come up with a pseudonym, pseudonym yeah. for them. And I was like, they said, oh, what do you want your name to be? And I, I said, oh, I'd love it to be Enrique, but I don't look like an Enrique, do I? So I'll probably just go with Ted, and I was only joking. And then the script came. They filmed everything, then the script came, and I had to do these readings after. And it's like, hi, my name's Ted. And I was like, no, I'm not calling us Ted. Ted, man. I'm going to get paid out bad. Like, And then they're like, no, it's too late. We'd have to send it down to Canberra to get re- Oh, yeah. There's a deadline. Yeah. We'd have to get it reapproved. The deadline's like, this Friday, we can't do it. So you just need to read it. I was like, oh, okay. And I did it, and then everybody... You know, getting all these calls from uh, all these Aboriginal communities around the country. Like, hey, yeah, brother, your name's not Ted. What are you telling my wife <laughs> for? I was like, no, no. It's, it's TV, bad. but. It's a TV. I app. still use your real. I don't know, I was just surprised you used your real fan. It seems like such a personal thing to... I guess that made it look natural, you yeah, know, as well, yeah. with doing that. I hope you got fixed up for that well. Yeah, it did, yeah, yeah. It, was, uh, it was worth the pain and suffering of you know, a couple of years of like, hey, Ted, oh, here he is, oh, put your cigarettes out, here he comes, oh, like, you know. I but saw you good. in the... I was in the toilets once too, and there was, like, photo... This was even yeah, way before that. Yeah, at Yeah, it's like you were yelling at your... Still your oh, no. actual family. No, that, like was a, that was an ad for DV. The, yeah, DV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was weird because... Of company that I did that for told me that was only going to like a couple of regional or remote Aboriginal communities mm. and then you said well I was in the toilet at Chermside yeah. what yeah. I just was like what man I can't <laughs> believe this I was like I wouldn't yeah. have done it if it was just like everywhere you know and my mum I remember my mum ringing me going son what's the matter I was like what <laughs> Oh, your cousin brought home a poster. And I said, what? What was it? Oh, there was a smashed photo album, photo frame, and you're inside the photo frame with your son. I was like, and? She said, it's about DV. And I went, Mum, it's an ad. Oh, gee whiz. I was like, just chill out. It's an ad. It's a government ad. I just did an ad. I got paid money to do it. She's like, oh, what, what? So you're not, you're not. I said, no, it's a television. It's a, it's a, <laughs> yeah, advertising is crazy, eh? Because a family member had seen it in a hospital, picked it up off the wall and took it home and said, honey, Aileen, look at this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she was just devastated. <laughs> yeah. Are you teaching right now in any capacity? No, I, I did a bit of teaching for QUT, like one day a week a while ago um, yeah. in the creative arts faculty and it was in um, performing arts but at the moment no at the moment I'm on the on the board of the Australian Live Music Business Council that's right. on the board of the National Independent uh, the Australian Independent Music Awards I think it is or National Ind- uh, National Independent Music Awards Australian yeah. Independent Music Awards also the I'm on the advisory committee for the National Indigenous Music Awards. Yeah. So that, you know, they just help do that in my spare time and sort of to keep <laughs> spare in time. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know how you do it. Even thinking back with what all the stuff you used to do, it's like you're always answering phones, you're always, yeah, it was moving, always doing yeah, something. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was a part of the founding group of the Brisbane, uh, the Queensland Stop Black Deaths in Custody Committee. Yeah, right. As well. So I help out with that and. 
started a few th- little things around the community that run. Uh, yeah, you got in the park down at Musgrave Park, and then work full time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And do music. Just just finishing off an album yesterday over at um, Alchemix with Marley. Yeah. And um, oh, the guy I'm in a band with, um, yeah. uh, brother Sam Panker, so he plays double bass. Now, is this He's on the, the the songline stuff you were talking about? No, this is no. different. Oh well, this is songs um, that I've written language in Butchler language. Yeah. And then we also had. Uh, String Quartet come in yesterday, so we'll finish that off. Some people from QSO. You yeah, saying? one, yeah. Uh, I think the, she's the, I forget her name now, because I, I, they all know Sam, so I, I just met them through Sam um, only yesterday. But uh, the principal, maybe Cello, Cello was for QSO, I think, don't quote me on that. And yeah. then three other players, two violinists and a another instrument. I wasn't paying much attention, but it's just a quartet, you know, string quartet. Yeah, yeah. You must meet so many people. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> surprise. Yeah, yeah. Your memory's fantastic. Uh, do you mind if we talk about any song line? Yeah, yeah, stuff? yeah, yeah, cool. Just to, to recap, we had having lunch before and I was talking, I think back in 95, I did the subject at uni called non-Western music, which now we look back at it, it's almost seen as almost a racist term or an academia. That's yeah, that sort yeah. of definite what's Western, what's non-Western and yeah. why does that. To, but the fact we have to define it that way says a lot, lot of things. Uh, it was interesting. And one of the topics, one of the assignments I had to do was a presentation on, well, I chose to do a presentation on song lines because at the time it fit that criteria. Yep. Song lines in Australia, in Indigenous Australia. Learning what I could at the time from library books, microfilm, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, um, this one particular book had a little seven inch at the back, which had yeah. the songs that I could actually uh, hear as well. But even from that limited information at the time, it blew my mind the concept of this, including how practical music could be like a utility for passing along information. Like actually, there's a river here or a, a path here, or and getting that right. Anything from survival tactics to languages from other nations. I heard that you can learn to speak some lingo from one nation to another via song lines. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be yeah really valuable unique phenomenon to Australia perhaps it's in other countries but I don't, I don't know about that but look can you elaborate on what your take is on songline songline tradition and you know yeah. you'd be over all over this compared to someone like myself but <laughs> yeah yeah I grew up singing so I saw my older brothers they they were in a dance group with my older cousins in the 80s called Imbala and my older cousins are Brady so um, Graham William Vincent Kawanji there was a crew of them and their father was um the punching pastor. He was a Christian minister, a Christian pastor, but a really staunch Kukuyalanji man. His family was exiled from up in the Cape. So, and I never thought, I never ever thought of it like that. But I was like, and I said, Where, what do you mean exiled? And I remember talking to my cousin Graham and he said, oh, you know, when they took him to the mission, they're exiling them off to this other place. And I was like, hey, when you think about it like that, like using that terminology makes sense. So I heard those songs when my brothers were singing. And then I learned the songs that my, my older brother, Wayne, one of my older brothers, Wayne Sandy, he taught me all the songs he knew. Then as I was growing up, I used hip hop workshops to get around to different communities, mainly to track down family members, but also to pick up songs, just sit down and sing and let them know what I knew and where it was from and what it meant. And then, you know. Is that when you were doing dance collections? I remember one time you were trying to. You had this camera and you were really excited about this amazing Canon camera. Oh, you had this on camera. You were, collect, you were trying to, like a barrel bill, I remember you were trying to collect dances. You were, you were trying to. Oh, 
Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, well, oh, just, yeah, yeah. Uh, fascinated been with the different styles. Okay. Yeah, because okay, there's yeah. so many different um, so many different styles of dance and all the different paint-ups and that. And my brothers were really strict on me with that. They'd say, like, you don't do a paint-up or dance. That's not yours or dance style. You do you do what we teach you and, and then we'll tell you where it's from and, you know, and we'll tell you why and how. And then if somebody gives you something, you know, you need to get permission and if you're going to... Yeah, so they just taught me all the, I suppose you'd call it the... Um, protocols of it all. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so I'm good at memorising those songs. And then when I got older, I, my mum gave me a dictionary when I was in my early 20s and it was a Butchell dictionary and I remember reading it and I knew 43 words in there from yeah. me hearing them grow, when I was growing up, people using it in a, like a Creole. I was like, oh, wow. If, and if I know these words like jaraja, but that's how you spell it phonetically, um, that's how a, a, a um, cause my auntie became a linguist. And I'm like, oh, if that's how you set it out linguistically, then I can, if I can read that and I know how to pronounce that, then I know how to pronounce this word, that word, this word, that word, this word. With all the 43 words that I had in my head, I was able to just figure out all these other ones and then I'd just be like, oh. And then, yeah, I remember on that, sitting on a plane trip with you once, I remember it was having quite, quite good conversations. I found them interesting. And yeah, you pulled out this, maybe it was what, a dictionary at the time. I remember that yeah. was a bachelor dictionary. Yeah, a bachelor or a, one. Yeah, yeah, that was it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, and then I started looking at songs that I knew and seeing if there was any crossover in the words and stuff. And then I, yeah, it was weird. I had a bunch of whole, a whole bunch of dreams one year, and it was really weird. So I'll get it'll, it'll eventually this sort of story drags on a little bit, but not too long. But oh, um, I, yeah, I had this set of dreams. So I'd have a, like this really vivid dream, and the next night I'd wake up and I'd hear like a tune, like uh, you know, like um. And I'd hear it, and I'd be like, "What?" And I wake up, and, this, and I could just still hear it in my head. And I'm like, "Oh!" And you know, it's in the middle of when we were doing all these gigs and touring and stuff. Oh, right. Yeah. And so I was like, "Oh!" I'd get up and just hum it into the phone. And then the next night, then that'll be the second night. And then the next night, I'd just wake up, and there was nothing. And I'd just be like pacing around the house, like, "Why can't I sleep? This is weird." And that happened about nine times. And then I went up to Robinson River to my grandfather's country for the very first time, and I sat down with old Pa Larry Hooson and he was singing me all these old bits of Gujiga, which is like proper song lines, teaching me some of the language, Garoa language. Yeah. For go up in the Gulf. And um yeah. I started tell, talking to him about these dreams I'd had, you know, a year about a year or a few months earlier. He said, Oh, okay, what did you do with them? And I said, Nothing? What do you mean? He goes, Did you put them into a song and a dance? And I was like, No. No, he goes, well, hurry up, because that's what that, that's what those old people do. They'll just plant it in your brain, and every generation has somebody that can pick them up. And he said, you, pick, you, you, can, you can pick them up. Said, awesome. so, and he said, can you speak Garawan? Not a little bit. He said, oh, well, um, can you, what other language? And I said, oh, Bachelor, I've been studying it for years. I, I know it pretty good, you know, I know it fairly good. He said, well, put these dancers together in that language and then come up with a dance for it. So then I came back to Brisbane and then over a year or two, I just went through and word for word put these songs together to describe exactly what was happening in the dream. Hmm. And I ran them by a couple of my aunties, hmm. uh, Jeannie Bell, who was a linguist, really well-known linguist, Aboriginal linguist. She, she was a bachelor linguist as well. She put them together like 
two iterations of the Butchler Dictionary, uh, Butchler Dictionary, Butchler and Gubby Gubby Dictionary, and also worked on a Waka Waka Dictionary and a few different mobs dictionaries around the country. Okay. So I'd run things by her and she'd, yep, yeah, that's right. Or she'd just say, oh, no, you need to, you know, structure it like this. She'd talk about it in terms of, like, linguistics, how it worked and how the language is properly structured. So then got the songs, I recorded them, and then every time I went up to Harvey Bay, I'd just leave them with the other songmen and over and over and over again. Now those songs, it's been seven or eight years since people started learning them because I didn't do that till a few years later and then I didn't take them up there till like a few years later and then now everybody knows them everybody knows the dances a few people know the songs a lot of the kids are learning the songs through what you were, you through were, what doing, were doing yeah, yeah that's and, great yeah. yeah and so another thing that, another project that I'm working on now because I learned a lot about my grandfather's country when I was really young 12 13 my old grandmother my great-grandfather had seven wives a whole bunch of kids my mum's one of probably over 100 and something grandchildren. So my grandfather's younger sister, she came and lived with us for two years and a year and a half, two years, and she just taught me as much as she knew. And I retained a, not a lot of it, I retained a whole bunch of it anyway. And yeah, I must admit, you, from what, what I remember of you and know of you, you, you seem to have a great memory. It's like a sponge and it just and it retains yeah, really well. yeah. Except for my rap lyrics. <laughs> yeah, I remember you writing that on the cardboard. Yeah. Why are you writing out the first line? Like, yeah, I can't yeah. remember. Just in so. case, yeah. But you remember all this other stuff. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's, um, yeah. it's a spin out. Yeah, and so because I'd learnt that stuff of her, when it came to like putting these songs together for my grandfather, my grandmother's side, Butchler, so Fraser Island, Harvey Bay, Gari, mm. we call it Gari, Fraser Island, and Harvey yeah. Bay, Maribyrnong, Rainbow Beach around there. So Tinnambar around that, all those areas. So... I put all those songs together and I've been singing for years and years and years and then I did a few more I did on you know the first time I went to Dormaji was with you me you yeah it was that and we went up to Morton uh, that was the first time yeah I remember it was just like it was like a massive family reunion yeah you meeting all the yeah. family it's like yeah. I remember the lady going you know oh don't don't go out after dark and I was just laughing if the sun was going down and I just laughed and walked out and went and caught up with some family that that afternoon late in the afternoon but she was like oh don't don't go out it's like nah I said, I'm related to literally half of this. Yeah, this yeah I knew yeah. all the names because from what mum told me when I was a kid. And then I just went out and found them all. And I've been going up there for years. Ever since, I've been up oh, there that's cool. once, twice a year sometimes. Like, Yeah, I remember, yeah, for me, it was, I've been to other, some other communities, but not like as remote as that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Like at Mornington and... Um, Dormaji. Dormaji. Uh, yeah, it felt like another country to me, and just the way it looked. Yeah, I remember you. There was lots of hugs. You were just, oh, I didn't mean it was just a lot of love. You mean yeah. all the family? It was, it was really good to see. I'd sort of hang back and yeah. stay. I don't know what I was doing. Stay in the car with with oh. old mate. Bianca. Bianca. Bianca, yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah, that's her. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I remember you met, I don't think we mentioned, she, she, I think she passed away, but. Yeah, uh, AP, yeah. Not yeah, long yeah. ago, I flew up, they rang me and said, oh, she's asking for you, and I got paid, and the next day I just jumped on a flight and went up there and stayed for a week and just sat yeah. with her every day, and then she passed away like a couple of weeks later. But, um, Oh, yeah, it's I got good to we got there because I, I remember you meeting it. I think I took an odd photo, yeah. which yeah. I won't publish anyway. It's just, yeah. yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. It seemed like an amazing meeting. Yeah, like, yeah. I remember you telling me all the stuff you were learning. Yeah, because my grandfather knowledge. was taken from up there, 12, from Westmoreland Station. So my great-grandfather... Your great-grandfather or your no, grandfather? My, no, well, my great-grandfather survived, and my great-great-grandfather survived wild time when uh, white people were moving up into the Gulf of Carpentaria, late 1800s, early 1900s, like 1890s, 1800s. 
1880s, 1890s, and my great-grandfather survived three massacres. Wow. Last one was in 1896 on Wollagrang Station in the Territory, just mm. east of Borolula. And then eventually after that, he speared the station owner. They killed a bunch of people, took one of his wives and took him back to the station house. And, you know, and so he followed them, took about, I don't know... 19 miles it was about 19 miles away he tracked them back and then um speared the guys came out he made a noise they came out to look and he speared the station owner in the thigh mm. through three spears they hit the little shack and and then he got shot through the shoulder by a guy called paddy yellow paddy they call him which i think he must have been half chinese and that was like a derogative term but uh, you know at the time that was what they that called was the name yeah, 1896 yeah, yeah. Like yellow paddy Shot him, shot him through the shoulder. The wife that was there, that captured and were doing all, you know, whatever they were doing, she escaped. And then, then he went and he grabbed her and they went and they went back to the rest of the tribe, who was the ones who were left. Because a lot of people, like, um, yeah, a lot of kids and stuff were thrown into the creek and all this stuff. Heaps and heaps of crazy stuff happened. And it's weird to read an anthropologist version of it and then hear her family. That's actually First hand from your family. Yeah, you know, Like, yeah. it's crazy. Then great-grandfather survived that. They eventually gave him a king plate and he worked in Burktown at the Butchers with the Sweeney brothers. and Sweeney brothers. Yeah. yeah. And um, because he didn't go back and keep fighting against that station owner, they sort of gave him a king plate and tried to get him to thing, and he was in town working in there, but he was, like, influential. So I, I don't know. What, what's anyway. a king plate? Oh, so a king it? plate yeah. is, like, what the government tried to use. They, well, they used it as a way of, like, trying to divide and conquer, basically. It was like, right. oh, you're the king of this country. You're the king of this whole area. Uh, if, if you want, you can get... And it was a way of trying to get other people to assimilate. So they'd be like, oh, you can get other... You can get these get blankets the for ringleader. Or yeah. You can get rations and blankets for these other Aboriginals if you just, you know, uh, here's your king plate, you're the king. Well, because yeah. they, were, they were high, men of high degree within their communities, and then suddenly it was just a way of, you know, sort of... They were good communicators as well, like he picked up English Influencing a little bit. Or, yeah. yeah. So, and so... Today they would have called her yeah, an influencer. <laughs> no, but no, no. Didn't. Anyway, he yeah. Long story short, he yep. he ended up getting shot through the head because he killed the cook because one of his seven wives had a half Chinese baby and it turned out the cook had you know relations. Like, yeah, with relations or something. So that's, like that. that's a very yeah subtle to yeah 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 nice way yeah, of putting it. Yeah, like. yeah, with one of his wives. So he went with all the old lawmen, all the old mm. warriors of the. Garua, Gungalita, Wanya, Yanula, and Ladil. They got him out of the, because there was only one bloke who was there and he was a cook at Westmoreland Station on the Queensland side, up near Doomadji. So they got him, pulled him outside, said, You stand in the circle, drew a circle, walk back 10 paces. They all lined up, and what happens is you have to face them. They might give you a shield or you might just have to stand there, and you can only move within that circle, and everybody gets a turn at throwing a spear at you. And if you survive with whatever wounds you have, Mm. then your punishment has been served. If you die, then punishment has been served. Yeah. My old great-grandfather, oh, got in Jamaji, he they called him King Peter in English, um, and Jamajaraja is his bush name, mm. lined him up, went Phoom! first spear, just hit him in the chest, hit him in the heart, killed him. So in three years, he went on the run, right. and they yeah. caught him in a bush. He waved a white flag up on the spear, then they just shot in because they knew they had him, so they shot into the bush and he staggered out, and then they grabbed him point blank and shot him through the head and buried him upside down at the front gate at Westmoreland Station. Yeah, he's still there today. Um, really? Yeah. yeah. Took the king plate and I was talking to one old, my old, um, Wulugan, my old 
dad, Skinway, from up there, who was just talking to him yesterday, he was in Brisbane here, and he said he thinks the king plate is over in England somewhere. Yeah, because it's not in any Australian museums or libraries. But there are families that, like, keep them in their family and won't tell anybody. Like, yeah. There's been cases yeah. of that that have popped up, and they think, you know, like, well, rightfully so, the people want to repatriate those things to family members and stuff. But Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, oh. my grandfather was born on Westmoreland Station, near where his father was killed. So he was born then. I don't know whether he was taken before or after his father was killed, but he was taken because some old fellas had killed a cow. They went out yeah, looking for kangaroo. Yeah. There was only cow. They got a cow. And he was standing there whistling, leaning on the fence at Westmoreland Station, just watching these old Murray fellas cutting up a Algaro men, cutting up a bullock, they call it, cow. Yeah. And a, he heard a little engine coming. There's a story that he told my mum and my mum told me, and he mm. was 12, just been through initiation, first level, Monday The car came up and he heard it and he was just like whistling. And they pulled up and these other blokes just ran off and left him there. And he's like looking at them and they came up and they started talking to him. He's like, huh? And they just grabbed him. Well, how how old is he? 12. Oh, he's 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they just grabbed him and said, oh, you stole that. And ended up using him for slave labour on, so he became a stockman at 12. Just taught him how to become a stockman and he worked for free. Like they just moved blackfellas around stations. And this would have been late 1800s? No, this or? was like 1920s. 1920s? Yeah, yeah. 1920s, something like that. 19, yeah. uh, early, not like the teens maybe or 1920s around then. Because he was born like 1906, so he was 12 at what? Yeah whatever year and then that happened and he got taken to Palm Island and then but on that side of my family there's Gudiga still there Songlines are still there so mm. this was a very long story to get to this point that's okay that's yeah. it's amazing to hear yeah. so I'm learning it at the moment so there's for my clan for Mumbalia clan we have four different clan groups and within those four clan groups there's all up there's 16 different skin names, so four in each clan group. For my clan, Mumblia, that's that one song that we talk about. Yeah, it's a big one. Is that yeah. the one with the verses? You said there was one. There's 280 like, verses. 280 yeah. verses. Yeah. That it runs over like roughly maybe like about 800, 830 kilometres. It's a big, <laughs> big, big, big song, you know. Yeah. And so it's, it's describing, without going into too much detail, because yeah. I can't go into too much detail, but it'll, it describes like I'm only 38, 40-something verses into learning it. And it's weird because I'm learning it remotely down here. Get to talk to Mob up there and talk to my big brother, Bawanya uh, Bawa, about it and sing and listen to recordings that I, I keep recording people singing it so I can practice it. Yeah, I'm 40-something verses into 280 verses. I've got to learn it in reverse. Yeah. I can't sing it forward because it's pretty, you know, it's just it's like... Have to do it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a training sort of for it. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> long story short. But it describes things like in graphic detail, like how a certain spirit will get up in a certain spot. And when I say get up, like get up and move. And then there'll be like witnesses to this thing moving across the sky or across the land yeah. when it's creating stuff. And then there's like witnesses that are like birds or could be like a, someone was fishing, spear fishing. So yeah. it's almost like an echo of the past. Everything that was there when, in, when that creation was happening was spoken about from that point to now like up until now it still exists <clears throat> yeah describe it like an echo like i know when i sing it i get this feeling of um well i know there's a connection like i know my grandfather knew it i know my great-grandfather knew it i know like every generation back knew it and then because i know the clan system inside out and the skin system it's almost like a time machine like yeah. the, the way I described it is like if you know your clan system and the skin system right I can go back and like just by knowing my mother and my father and then my you know their mother and their father I don't even have to know their English names but their skin names you can go back forever 
Like it's a time machine. Like you know every single person and the essence of that person because the essence of that person is in their clan and their totems. You know, like I was talking to my partner, I said, oh, we've got the oldest culture in the world. She goes, and we, we talked about this in depth for ages. She's an archaeologist. She dug, okay. um, was one of the archaeologists that dug uh, the 65,000-year-old 60, site. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So she's on the front line of that. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And, um, and we were talking about it, and she said to me, she goes, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'd say the oldest culture, because, like, humanity is old, right? Humanity is all as old as each other. But she said, what's different about your culture that you've noticed is different to other cultures? And I said, oh, well, stories, like I know stories that were around before religion, were around before science, were around before, like, anything. On a, like, stories from have just been told, like, in a, in a certain way for that many generations that's ridiculous to the point where, like, we can go, oh, oh black wattles in flower. All right, we're going to go down. We'll look at Wurrama. Wurrama is the Bromley Kitehawk. We'll go fishing. Oh, we won't go fishing for that first little school of fish. We'll wait for the big ones because if we do that, then all the fish that we want, we'll just avoid that area. So just ways of knowing and fishing. And, and then I thought about it a bit more. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's true. Like, we have a... Humanity, we're all just as old as each other, but what's different between Aboriginal Australia and the rest of the world is that every single Aboriginal group, the clan groups, stayed in one particular area and knew everything about that area and passed that knowledge on to the next generation and everything, every song, every bit of... So the, the, a bit of a myth with the nomads... Yeah, and like we yeah. did move, like people did move, like we, on Gari, where Tukivuru is, where Tucky is, the, um, they call that Indian head because Captain Cook came past and saw these people there and he said, oh, the Indians are there, they were on the thing and they were waving at us and it's, it's got okay. a diary document, uh, a diary um, note. But what's famous about that note is the same time he was documenting us, Bachelor people wrote the first song about Captain Documenting Cook, him. Documenting yeah. him <laughs> about this white crab on the ocean and then it crawled <laughs> off into the sand like it looked yeah, like it was yeah, crawling yeah. off into the sand. And they were trying to warn it, the crab, to go out east a bit more because there's a reef. And he yeah. tells exact, the song talks about that. His diary documents that they were waving and then he figured out that, oh, they were talking about the reef. So they turned and they missed the reef. Yeah, so there's those stories, but it's that knowledge of one particular area and it wasn't like we'd have gatherings over on that Indian head, same as Bunya Festival. So different tribes will come because the season is ripe for the Bunya tree. So everyone will come and that was a sort of, I suppose, where it got sort of stereotype when anthropologists in the early days were thinking, like, oh, they're nomadic. They just travel around everywhere. They don't stay in one spot. It's like, nah, mm. we know this country like the back of our hands. We travel over to the here because this season we don't have any food, so we had to move over here, get the food, and then we come back. Yeah. We always come back home and, you know, know where to go on our land or the neighbouring lands because all our clans are connected anyway, even throughout like, five or six tribes. So everybody sharing is caring thing, yeah. But there's a lot that, there's that depth in the history that sets Indigenous Australia apart from the rest of the world. Yeah, through, yeah, you can, yeah, through that. And through the songs, like the songs yeah. are like, only in the last 10 years they've started to work out that like these mythical beings that it's sung about in some of the songs are like, oh, that was actually like when there was a megafauna, you know, and they're like, yeah, right. wow, okay, yeah, yeah. that creature existed here, the bones, like, wow. I guess when you were telling me, like, you're at Monash University, yeah, yeah, and you're, yeah. you're working there? Or yeah, I'm working there, yeah. You're working, working there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm the uh, project. project manager for Wudunguarawa, which okay. is a, yeah, uh, an animation. So we, it's an animation 
program where we animate endangered Aboriginal languages, so whether they're song lines or narratives from all around the country, and then we animate them in 3D. Because I remember when you were sort of collecting songs or dancing at the time and you were telling me, you know, you've, you've got to earn your right or there's sort of a protocol or what information will get passed down yeah. from elders and, unfor- well, fortunately, unfortunately, it depends how you look at it, but it's as though, well, from what I was saying, is like potentially knowledge is getting getting lost because, yeah. or partly because, yeah, they just don't trust the next, the, the upcoming yeah. elder and you were kind of it at the time or or maybe you haven't, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's it's weird because I call it going fishing and it's like, you know, as a teacher yourself, when you have a student and you know, oh, this person's just not going to cut the mustard, right? And you know <laughs> from the start that they're not going to be the one and you can tell the students that are going to pick it up and run with it. That's the same, I call it a process of fishing. It's the same thing we do that I'm doing that every selection, generation. Uh, yeah, selection uh, process. Yeah. And, and like, oh, that kid picked up that rhythm really well or that kid just learning these songs, that kid's really good dancer so it's like okay well i'll give them this dance Mm. i'll show them this particular dance move from my family i'll um give them a song i'll teach a group of them this yeah it's 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 a process and it's it's always happening but sadly like i know my personal view of it is that the remote areas are probably only 100 years behind an urban setting in terms of like loss of culture if you look in the history books you can read about urban areas major cities and you can hear about all those stories you can read all the stories of all the the things that were happening the ceremonies that were happening and the aboriginal people that were around and then how due to colonization it's just a slow burnout or a slow dying out or, or like a like a um assimilation processes you know and those processes there's processes of assimilation aren't accidental it's like every mm. every single uh it's by design yeah it's by design like mm. every single piece of legislation that goes through in government when people go oh why don't aboriginal people you know like they just can't get their stuff together they're this and that and it's like every piece of legislation that hinders indigenous people isn't an accident it's for the benefit of non-indigenous people because the end of the day you know there's just not we're not valued we're not valued as you know as my mother's gen my mother was an animal until she was born in 52 she Mm. became a human being in 1967 my grandfather to find him to find his birth certificate we had to look in livestock so it's like you know it's not long ago that's not long ago that's my mum my mum got a third of the wage as a nurse and as a domestic which is a basically a servant in the houses around Brisbane she got paid a third less than her white counterparts that's just her generation and so when you have stuff like that happening and like my grandfather was worked as a slave up on stop cattle stations until they were like oh okay we need to pay these guys but they didn't pay them as much as non-indigenous stockmen so there's that intergenerational wealth uh, like uh, transfer uh, uh, or non-transfer yeah yeah yeah. so there's (laughs) no super being made there's no properties being bought there's no accumulation of wealth it's just you just survive and then that's what you give to your children and they just survive Mm. and and the conditions get worse and worse as it gets down each generation under i suppose like there's a lot of aboriginal people doing a lot of really good things yeah at the same time as that it's like yes you can have this but uh, you can't you've got a cushy job now so you don't need to go That's and protest about blackness and customers oh, yeah. you know so it's sort of like they've got you by the knackers it's really yeah. weird so that's where music I love music because arts even with black armband performing all around the world the performing arts is amazing music is amazing you can have a voice and it can be heard do you find it's like a passport yeah being it is. music and a yeah, yeah yeah and hip hop like even mm. just talk, going back to hip hop what we started this whole conversation about 
been all around the world and like just go, oh man, you know about you heard about this guy here? Oh yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know that guy. Yeah, we're, you know, oh talk about graffiti or rap, and then suddenly bang, that's your passport. Like you know, yeah, well, some good time highlights for me. Like yeah, headlining with yourself with Impossible Odds, not headlining, um, supporting Public Enemy and yeah. Uh, Dead Prez was yeah, another Dead one. Prez, Dead yeah. Prez, yeah. Um, yeah, although that time I'd switched to Keys by by then. It's kind of yeah. odd, but uh, yeah. Yeah, possibly <laughs> odd. <laughs> possibly <laughs> odd. Yeah, I remember some guy said to that me in a pub when I was wearing one of the shirts once. I go, that's ah, very funny, very clever. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but look, yeah, just wrap it up there for I don't know if you had, you've had you here for ages. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for having me. But, but Feel is, free to edit out anything. That was like I started rambling there for a while. No, I was good. Yeah, have you got any upcoming like, releases? Or anything? I mean, I mean I, yeah. I, we didn't even talk about a lot of stuff. Look, looky, looky, here comes Cookie. There was the, yep. the track you did with Birds that's yeah, doing yeah. really that's, well on the. That's at number three on the Australian iTunes hip hop so, charts yeah. uh, as of today. Bagilam Bagan yeah. means fighting boomerang. So B A G I hyphen L A hyphen M space B A R G A N. Bagilam Bagan by Birds B I R D Z. featuring cousin. Yeah, yeah. cousin yeah. Yeah. That and we just. We're, Finishing up the album for Yirinda, the crew that I'm in now with myself and uh, duo, duo with Sam yeah. Pankhurst, and that's not hip hop stuff. It's sort of like uh, a mixture of all these different genres and music. All of it's in language, in bachelor language. But, yeah, um, yeah, just experimental type. Yeah, stuff. Yeah, you're always doing something for it. Um, and where do we? Your best place to follow you is like. Like for your music projects yeah, or what Instagram, you're doing Insta. Probably Insta. Instagram, yeah. Facebook, I can't have any more friends now. But. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you delved into TikTok yet or nah, nah. Too Mate, you, that, I think, right? I could go off on TikTok. Go so. off on TikTok. You know, <laughs> I have to hit TikTok for sure. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, Instagram, Fred Leone. Yeah, Yurinda's on Instagram as well. Yeah. Alright, well look, yeah, thanks again for coming in. Fred, thanks for having me. This has been Teaching Years, Episode 6. Catch you again next week. See ya. Bye.